1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
0: Top tech companies like Intel have a secret to their success. They get the best talent, reliable infrastructure, and save on costs by expanding in Ohio, the new Silicon Heartland. Learn how your business can succeed in Ohio. Visit successinohio.com.
1: Today's guest is S.E. Feinberg, the co-author of Southern Man, Music and Mayhem in the American South, about Alan Walden, a groundbreaking figure in the music industry. Along with his brother, legendary producer Phil Walden, they had a huge impact on the music world via Macon, Georgia. Welcome, Steve.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, Your book was, you know, incredible in that everybody knows these artists, but I don't think they know, you know, the Walden brothers. So uh, I look forward to you kind of telling their story. You wrote the book with Alan. Yeah. And your forward to the book really tells in a very nice way how you met Alan Walden, and how this book came to be. Can you recount that to set the stage for our listeners?
2: I sure could. Interestingly enough, it started in a traffic jam in front of Stonehenge in England when the uh, popular uh, singer-songwriter Rumor was telling me all about these three kids in Macon, Alan Walden, Phil Walden, and Otis Redding. And they were pals growing up. And she was fascinated by the story, and I was fascinated by the story. And she arranged with much difficulty a meeting between myself and Alan. It took a long, long time because Alan was a recluse. He was a a very private person. He had been burned by a lot of people doing his story and sort of wanting to sort of put more of their life into it than his life. So he was very cautious and it took a long time to set up this meeting. And so uh, I went down to Macon. And rumor had set it up so I was to be at Allen's house, which is way out in the middle of the Georgia woods. And I got in my rented car and I started off with a breakfast at H&H, where the elman brothers used to eat breakfast. I started off in the Georgia woods and I got lost. Mm. I started to panic. I was from Boston. I didn't know the Georgia woods. I didn't spend any time in that area and my gps was saying i was there but all i was seeing was a pond and finally in desperation i pulled my car in front of a postal truck i learned something that you should never do in the georgia woods uh, out in that rural area and that is pull your car in front of a u.s postal truck (laughs) so the, the fellow jumped out of the car and he says what the hell's going on here and I says, I'm so sorry. I, I, I just didn't know what to do. I was, I was starting to panic and I, I needed to find a fellow's house. Well, who are you looking for? I says, Alan Walden. Alan Walden, what do you want him for? I said, well, I have an appointment with him at 1030. Well, do, do you know how to get to his house? He says, sure. He says, you see that pond over there? You cross that pond, there's a little dam or spillway out there. You cross that pond, you go across that pond, you take a left up that beach, you walk about a mile, mile and a half. You're going to come to a dock and a couple of chairs out there, and you probably see a John Deere tractor in the field, and uh, that's his house. I says, well, is there any way to drive to his house? He says, can I Can I drive up to his house? He says, yeah, yeah. He says you go down to Route 24 here. You cross that bridge. You follow railroad track out about two two and a half mile. You cross that light right there at that railroad track. You follow that right in the opposite direction down about five six mile. That'll put you down in the right there on that main road. And now you go up towards that main road to the left until you hit a horse farm. Now if you get that horse farm, you've gone too far. <laughs> turn around and you head back in the other direction. And he says, you, you, you drive into to see an old nursing home. And if you see that nursing home, you've gone too far in the other direction. In between that nursing home and that old farm, there's a road that don't look like a road. That's Alan's road. You take that road and uh, you find Alan, you drive into the woods about a mile. Wow. So I said, okay, uh, I'm going to do my best. So I really got lost again. And I called his daughter, Alan's daughter. And I said, you know, uh, I can't find the house. She goes, "How? where are you? I, I said, well, I think I'm near, between the horse farm and the nursing home. He goes, well, there's a road there that looks, doesn't look really like a road. Just, just, just go right up there. I think you're right there. So I went in and there it was, a beautiful old house on that pond with a John Deere tractor on the field and two chairs out there by the pond. And the dog started barking and he said, oh, what's going on here? So he comes out. I says, I'm Steve Feinberg. I have an appointment at 1030. He goes, well, he says, all right. I said, by the way, I said, is that a John Deere tractor you got there? you got a 4,700. He says, yeah, I'm having a bitch of a problem with it. He says, you know, it has got a, the back wheel on that brush pull is coming off. I don't know what to do with it. I says, I've got the same tractor. I said, I know exactly how to fix that, and I can fix it if you want me to. He says, well, you got a John Deere 4,700? (laughs) And we started talking about John Deere 4,700s, and he says, you know, we used to have a lot of animals around here. I says, what you have? He goes, son and goats. I said, son and goats? I had four or five son and goats. I know all about son and goats. He says, yeah, he says, those son and goats are really strange. He says, you know what a son and goat can do on a full moon? He says, he walks like a man. I said, well, you know, we I got a lot of goat stories, too. And then he says, how do you feel about Dr. Pepper? And I said, I, I like Dr. Pepper. He says, how do you like it? I says, what do you mean, how do I like it? He goes, you like it cold? You like it warm? I said, I like it right before it gets frosty. He says, that's right. <laughs> that's the only way to drink it. And he went into a cooler, and he got a can of Dr. Pepper, and he and he put it up to my face, and he went, And he says, are you ever here anything more beautiful than that? And I said, no, that sounds good. He says, you come into the house. Let's have a cup of the Dr. Pepper. Wow. And then I realized what I went out to do was to find out if we could get along. And as it would have it, that's how it was set up. And we went in there and I walked into this room, a cavernous, a cavernous room with every inch covered with the most extraordinary music memorabilia i have ever seen in my life going all the way back to the 50s going all the way back to the, going into the 70s and the 80s it was extraordinary wow but we didn't talk about music we talked about some other things he showed me a picture of his wife and then he invited me back and that's why i went there can we get along so that he'd invite me back. So uh, Rumor and, and her husband, Rob Sharakbari, we arranged it and we videotaped him for about 45 hours. And I kept visiting back and forth, back and forth, and we became friends. And the more we became friends, the more I could start to hear his voice. A big deal with me in in doing memoirs and things is trying to find that voice of how this person actually sounds. Does he really sound like that? Or is, he, or is it the writer trying to make him sound a certain way? And it takes a long time for me personally to, to do that. And we drove a long ways. We used to drive out into the woods and we used to drive out and, and he used to show me the spots where he used to ride the horses and pick up girls at the colleges. And we drove into town and we spent a lot of time together. And that's basically how we got together. And that's how I got the work of Alan Walden. I knew about the Walden brothers peripherally. I knew that Phil was the sort of upfront man. I knew about Capricorn records in the, in the, in, starting in 1969. But Alan was the mystery man. And I've always been fascinated by the mystery man in music. You know, the person who, oh, he's the person who did that he's the person who did that so
1: you answered my next question which it is a very unique book in terms of the voice and it's very very clear especially after that story uh, how that all worked out and my question was going to be you know how did it work and then what was yours and alan's vision of the story were they similar and i'm going to just assume after that story that you guys were on the same page from the word go
2: what I wanted to do was make sure that Alan was happy. You know, we've started off with four or 500 pages of raw transcripts, and it doesn't sound like Alan necessarily, but I want every word, at least I'm going, I want to attempt every word so that when we're done, you're happy. When you sign off on this, you're signing off on your voice. And I've discovered that that was, that's a challenge. He's one of these people who are, if something is pronounced a certain way, he wants it pronounced a certain way. He is a Southern guy and he's a very big on what does it mean to be a Southerner? What does it mean to be a Southern musician? What is is the difference between a Southern musician and a Northern musician? On any given day, Alan Walden had 50 acts going on at once in the United States on any given Friday night. And he was responsible for making sure that people showed up, got their instruments, what act is going to need alcohol, what act is going to need a, a ride home, what who is going to not show up at the gig. And that he describes his Friday nights let, that way. And it was a fantastic experience working with this guy.
1: It sounds like it. And, and you know, to your credit, as well as Alan's, you know, it's clear that the South is kind of the co-star of the book with Alan.
2: It really is. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Everything is about the South. Yep. And growing up in Boston, I was always kind of afraid of the South. <laughs> in the old days, in high school, you know, it's not something that I want to drive through Georgia. I want to. I don't want to drive through Alabama. I learned how to appreciate the South, and I learned how to appreciate the South artistically, and what they brought to the table i had no idea alan and phil had 45 african-american acts they were handling from otis redding to percy sledge to joe Tex to to etta james and this is before all of this the the sort of southern rock and roll which was a distinct act one and act two
1: you're listening to all music podcasts a member of pantheon Media. We're speaking with S.E. Feinberg. He's the co-author of Southern Man, Music and Mayhem in the American South. Otis
2: Redding and Alan were best friends. And what was also very difficult and challenging was that when you talk to Alan about Otis Redding, it's not the cartoon Otis Redding. It's not the poster we see at Atlantic Records or whatever. It's it's his friend. and I said to Alan, I know this is going to be very difficult, but I'm going to ask you some really, really personal questions about Otis Redding. And I'm going to ask you to go back into your memory. And I want you to be able to speak to Otis here. I want you to be able to tell me really how you feel about it. And it was crying and hanging in there and desperately sad. I mean, this man was devastated more than anyone when Otis died. He tried to kill himself. They were truly, truly best friends. And I think that's one of the wonderful parts of his narrative. And that is these long rides through the Georgia woods and the Alabama woods and the Mississippi woods without Otis and Alan talking about life and God and love and wives and and all of this stuff—that's what I was after. That I was after that, not so much what was going on in a studio, but what was going on in the car.
1: <laughs> That's great. Well, let, let me rewind for just a minute here, um, because I, I, you know, I mentioned these guys are legends, and people know the music, but they're, you know, kind of quietly so. And you know, that you mentioned a, a bunch of the R and B acts, which is in, insane how many great people were on there. I'm gonna guess that this next question kind of tells how they met otis redding but in the early 60s phil was booking shows for high school and fraternity dances yes and as one chapter points out the south was really jumping music wise and that was due to a lot of the clubs and those kinds of things i'm guessing yes and one band that he booked featured otis redding as the singer right and that was the start of their partnership friendship everything right and you know to that point and you know you're book draws these wide conversations, but there's always these things that just blow me away. And in this one, Phil did not have any money, and his dad wouldn't give him money to finish college. Right, right. But what did Otis do?
2: His name is Pops. They called him Pops. He was the father. Phil was going to college. He was going to be the educated one. And Pops said, enough about this rock and roll. You're, You're taking all the money and you're using it for these rock and roll shows. Otis went out and he says, don't do anything. And he went out onto the streets of Macon. And I don't know if it was the, the, you know, the card games or whatever, but he got hundreds and hundreds of dollars and he brought it back to the table and he, he put it on the table. And he said to Phil, somebody's got to have an education in this company. That's, that's Otis Redding. That's Otis Webber.
1: That's the side not many people know, you know. I mean, he he is a kind of a um superstar, but everybody knows, you know, Dock of the Bay and stuff, but a story like that just digs so much deeper into, you know, who he was as well as what the relationship was as much family. Exactly.
2: As, you know. Exactly. Those were the stories I was after. I mean, people don't realize how dangerous this place was for black kids and white kids to be hanging around together. Much more dangerous than black kids alone in a car. When you have white kids and black kids, they hate you even more. Hmm. There was a death threat on Otis Redding's life. And Alan and Otis's bodyguard named Huck, a very, very powerful man, and several others stayed on the stage, backstage, with guns drawn during the entire show. And this was when Otis was a star. Shootouts, knife fights. Otis was kind of an emotional Renaissance man. He was as tough as nails, this guy. And he was a great guy, but he was tough, very tough. And so was not an Alan. And so weren't a lot of these kids. And you know what? What I really learned about all of these acts from Percy Sledge to, to Joe Tech to all these people, they were decent. Hardworking, they had a tremendous drive to succeed. Some of them did. Some of them didn't. And they were all very, very talented.
1: You mentioned that, you know the the race problem down there at that time yeah. and and it's really interesting, too, because it went both ways because uh, there's some stories that you talk about when Alan was out on the road and mm-hmm. Uh, the Apollo in New York City was not a picnic either, for for Allen, for Allen. No,
2: anyway. well, they've traveled to places like New York. They traveled to Detroit. They traveled to Chicago. Uh, a, a junkie tried to slice Alan's face with with some razor blades in in her fingers. They were at the Regal in Chicago where the Blackstone Rangers showed up, and the Blackstone Rangers, a very tough gang. In the early 60s, they controlled that neighborhood. They came up to the backstage and Alan was out getting some air. And he was white. When you say white, Alan was white. He was pale. He was small. He was white. And and this Blackstone Ranger came up and said, I want $10. And Alan says, "Okay, I'll give you $10. Here it is. Alan says, I want a bottle to to the Blackstone Ranger. He goes, "Okay." Guy disappears comes back, gives him a bottle. He got along with people like that. While Phil was in the army, Alan needed somebody who he could trust in the office. So Otis went over to Pops and said, please come to the office. He was, he was very ill, but he came over and he took care of the office. I mean, he was, he was the muscle in the office. You'd go to a club and, and you were going to count seats. And if every seat isn't accounted for, you're going to get that money. You're going to put a pistol down on the table, as they did a lot, and said, we want the money from these seats, or we're not going on. That's the kind of life it was. Compared to the record business today, I mean, this was gangsters. This mm-hmm. was rough people. Not not so much, not the acts. It was the club owners,
1: right.
2: and the, the, the chitlin circuit, and the juke joints, the rough juke joints. One night, uh, James Brown was out gunning for Joe Tex, and he came into one of these juke joints with a shotgun and started blasting out the place, and gave everybody $100 or whatever and left, and that was the end of it. That's the, that's the life.
1: You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with S.E. Feinberg. He's the co-author of Southern Man, Music and Mayhem in the American South. You know, there's a lot of great stories in here, because there's so many great musicians that these guys worked with. One of my favorite stories, and you mentioned him, is the discovery of the great Percy Sledge, Right, and how Alan went over to his workplace to meet with him to tell him that he wanted to work with him. Can you recount that?
2: Uh, Alan had heard the demo for When a Man Loves a Woman with the wonderful uh, tune horns and everything, and he found out that Percy was an orderly over in a hospital and he says, uh, I'm looking for Percy Sledge. He says, well, he's in that room. He says, he's giving a guy an (laughs) enema," And he said, uh, well, I'll wait for him. And then Percy Sledge comes out with his hands up in the air and says, what are you looking for me? He says, you were Percy Sledge. He says, yeah, you wrote when a man loves a woman. He says, yeah. He says, Percy, you're never going to give another enema as long as you live.
1: It's a great story. It's a great story. You know, you mentioned that Otis Redding was like family, and yes, Alan missed his session that produced "Dock of the Bay," and you know that was his final song. I think he heard it before he passed, but he passed shortly after that. Uh, yeah,
2: but I don't. I don't even think he heard the whistle. I don't think he heard the whistle.
1: Right. But he passed just several weeks, I think, after that was done. I
2: think it was recorded. I'm I'm guessing. I, I just can't remember. It's the Thursday, and he was died on Monday or Sunday.
1: And we all know what happened on that final plane ride. Um, but Alan's books, and you mentioned this, but Alan's memories are, are so incredibly personal in the, in the book. And you talked about him telling it. What was it like for you to hear that in person?
2: Alan relived it. I've got the opportunity to relive Otis's death as he heard it that night, detail after detail after detail. He could barely speak when he's telling these stories, and I learned from other memoirs that when that happens, for me personally as a writer, I just hang on to that keyboard, and I said, we're going to get through this somehow. We're going to just hang on. He was eating broccoli over at his mother-in-law's house when he heard the news. And he fell apart. He just fell apart. And he fell apart telling the story, and he fell apart recalling the story. He loved Otis Redding more than a musician, more than a, more than a business relationship. He, he was his best friend, even more so than Phil.
1: You know, it's weird, too, because just a few chapters before this, There was another plane issue that happened earlier. Yeah. This convinced Alan that Otis had already died. Yeah. Prior to it. And it was just so eerie to read that.
2: Yeah. You know, there are a lot of those things with Otis. A couple of weeks or a month or so before, Alan had booked Otis on a flight from, I think it was from New Orleans. And the plane went down. And when Alan found out the plane went down, the phone rang, and it was Otis. And he said, I bet you thought I was dead. Otis had a premonition of his own death. He took Alan out to his ranch one day, and he says, if I die, I want you to make sure that I'm buried right here, right here on this spot. And he says, I will promise you that, Otis. I will promise that's how it will be. And it was right after he was squirrel hunting. He says, he was squirrel hunting. He says, you know, Alan, I'm not going to kill anyone. I'm not going to kill anything anymore. Because he used to hunt and fish. But if I die, I want you to bury me right here. And and he, and he Alan made sure that's where it was. And And he is there today. That's the personal aspect and the sort of spiritual aspect of, you know, their relationship. And they have, you know, they have crazy stories, too. I mean, they were out. They were out on the road for six weeks and they were on their way home. Otis referred to Alan as Red. He called him Red because he had red hair. Don't ever call me Red. (laughs) Don't call me Red. Otis called me Red. And uh, Otis says, now, Alan, we've been in a lot of dirty hotels over the six weeks and I think we have crabs. So I'm going to give you this bottle and I want you to put it in the tub and I want you to go in there and I want you to sit in that tub. So Alan went in and sat in the tub. And when he came out of the tub, he was absolutely red, <laughs> completely red. He says, you're red. <laughs> red. He says, how much did you use? He goes, I used the whole bottle. He says, it's a capful you put in.
1: <laughs> well, I'm guessing he didn't have crabs anyway.
2: Those are little stories that you generally don't hear in the, uh, you know, the narrative of, uh, Uh, otis reading
1: well certainly the the voice in the book is is very personal and very conversational and and then the way it's set up is very interesting too because it's just kind of like scenes i mean there's clearly a narrative but the way it's presented is is pretty much how how you're talking and presenting it and nice southern accent too by the way
2: yes i i tried to present format like a lot of it took place Alan and I sitting on the porch on Clisby Avenue in Macon, Georgia, rocking back and forth, telling stories about all the old days. That's how I wanted it to come across.
1: Well, you certainly accomplished that. It's loud and clear. I mean, it's a very, it's a fun book to read just because you can put it down and pick it up and you're right back there in the moment. Thank you. it's, It's a ton of fun.
0: It's NFL draft season. And that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football